want to go ahead and read the thing? I do. On March 30th, 1979, in the State House at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, a group of men gathered to deliver what was probably the least comfortable press conference of their professional lives. Dressed in gray suits and striped ties and sweating heavily under the glare of the lights, they were answering questions from dozens of reporters packed into a very small room. The governor of Pennsylvania, Dick Thornburg, was in the center, directly behind the lectern. But he wasn't the man on the hot seat today. That would be the government official to his right, Thomas M. Jeruski, director of the Bureau of Radiation Protection at the then Department of Environmental Resources. Mr. Jeruski was trying, in the first part of this briefing, to answer what sounds like a very simple question. How much radiation exactly have the residents of Dauphin County been exposed to following what the government is calling the incident at Three Mile Island Nuclear Power Station? Three Mile Island is commonly abbreviated TMI, but too much information was exactly what Mr. Jeruski and Governor Thornburg don't have. When asked how much radiation has leaked out of the plant over the last two days, they don't know. When asked where the radioactive plume drifted off after it leaked out of the plant, they give an estimate. They don't know how long the situation will last. They're not sure how individuals can calculate their exposure or their child's. An evacuation probably isn't necessary. Governor Thornburg makes a point of saying that his wife and family are still here in Harrisburg, just 10 miles upwind from TMI. But yes, visitors might want to put off their visit for a little while, just as a precaution. The motives at work here are, some 40 years later, understandable. The governor is trying to prevent a panic. The utility company is trying to minimize monetary losses. And the government is trying to save the reputation of the nuclear industry. And the reporters, and by extension the residents of Dauphin County, are trying, and failing, to figure out how much risk they're taking with every breath of what might very well be dangerously radioactive air. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1979 meltdown at Three Mile Island. Thank you so much, Greg. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, nuclear and atomic power marketing specialist for the Relative Disasters Electrical Utility Company, LLC. And I'm her brother, Greg, Geiger Counter Analyst for the Relative Disasters Industrial Cleanup Corporation. Best of luck with the upcoming season there, Greg. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> this sounds awful. Um, okay, so it is and it isn't, and it's awful in ways yeah. that you don't expect. Right. And I, I feel like this is one of those things where Three Mile Island kind of gets glossed over. Like, a lot of people are like, well, you know, it's no Chernobyl, and it wasn't that bad, but... It really kind of was, wasn't it? Okay, so it's not Chernobyl. <laughs> it's not Chernobyl. We know that. It's not Fukushima. It's sure. really bad, but in a very different way. And yeah. it is the yeah. worst commercial nuclear power disaster in United States history. I know okay. you want to say so far, but really it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I stopped myself. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate myself. that. Our main sources for this episode are Three Mile Island, The Inside Story, which is a digital exhibit at the National Museum of American History, and the Three Mile Island Accident Report by Christopher Douglas for Backgrounder, which is a publication 
the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Public Affairs Office, which came out in 2022, nice and fresh. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. So those are the two sources we draw on most heavily. I also want to recommend uh, the miniseries Meltdown, which is on Netflix. I didn't take a lot from okay. that, but if you want to get a broader look at like the human cost, uh, that's sure. a really good really good resource. Uh, it's fascinating right. watching, too. I watched all four episodes at once. Oof. And went to bed at three in the morning and had the worst nightmares ever. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a science episode, Greg. Yay! I love it. Do you? <laughs> I do. I do. I am. I am thoroughly fascinated with all things atomic. It sounds weird, but I love learning about, you know, nuclear power. I love learning about how it works. I mean. Did you know that in the 1950s, they actually tried to design an atomic car? Yes, I did know that. I want one. Oh, my God. I want one. It flew. It flew? And it had fins. I mean, my two favorite things in a car are flying cars. Okay. 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 I didn't know it flew. I thought it, I never realized they'd gotten that far. Okay. I'm sorry. So very, very broadly, a nuclear power plant creates heat through a reactor core, which uses uranium to fuel nuclear fission, which produces heat. Yes. Water is circulated through the reactor. This generates steam, as you said, which runs through turbines, um, which in turn power the electrical generators. So it sounds simple when I describe it like that. And it is kind of simple when you look at a schematic of the technology or just basically heating water and using it to power things. Right? It's a tea kettle. Yeah, you're just doing it with incredibly... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so once you build your plant and gather up your uranium, nuclear power is attractive. It's cheap to produce and it's clean compared to... Even compared to solar and wind technologies, it it runs a little cleaner. Um, The downside, of course, is that uranium is radioactive and using it to fuel nuclear fission produces radioactive waste. And it has to go somewhere. So as long as the waste is disposed of properly, which we're still working on, it's great. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other problem is that this process produces tremendous amounts of pressure inside the kind of heart of the reactor, the pressure vessel, which is the container for the core, the core shroud, and the coolant as it circulates in and out. Pressure vessels are built to last about 30 years, and they can break down in some really unexpected ways. Yeah. So the main safety issue is that the pressure vessel is responsible for cooling the core. If the core is uncovered or if it gets too hot, it goes into a state where it can't be controlled. And it creates a self-sustaining reaction that releases all kinds of bad stuff. Radioactive chemicals uh, that are incredibly dangerous for humans to ingest in any way. And the point is it can't be stopped. It can't be put out the way you'd put out a fire. And that's a meltdown, right? Exactly. Okay. Nevertheless, in the U.S., we love some electricity, and we love our nuclear things, especially in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. So we actually developed and built the first of these power plants. Go America! Yay! Yay! In 1948, the first reactor intended for electricity powered four light bulbs in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. That's it? Four light bulbs is a lot. That's like... Um, how, how much uranium did they use to power four light bulbs? That's not the question. Bulbs? Okay. The light bulbs came on and they stayed on. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Ten years All later, right. the first large-scale reactor connected to an electrical grid. Uh, that is more than four light bulbs. 
yes. or plus that went online at <laughs> Shippingport, Pennsylvania. So not everyone was super thrilled. Okay. Cause nuclear power plants are huge and they involve yeah. a lot of radioactive material, which most people do not understand myself included. And it's scary stuff. Yeah. It is scary. Nuclear stuff goes in bombs. And yes, that's that's the connection most people make. It's, if it's if it's nuclear, it can explode. I mean, they're not wrong, Greg. So as early as the 1960s, people are having some reservations about accidents and safety, particularly over the mechanisms that prevent a core meltdown. Sure. And that's what would occur if the nuclear reactor overheats and melts through the pressure vessel. That would be catastrophically yeah. bad. Okay, yeah. we'll just leave it at yeah. that. Yeah. The agency that oversees nuclear power in the U.S., the AEC, was like, yes, mm -hmm. but energy, jobs. And people were like, yes, but what exactly are we doing to make sure meltdowns don't happen? Which I think is a legitimate mm -hmm. concern. That's, yeah, that's a legitimate question. By the mid-1970s, there are organized protests and anti-nuclear activism. Much of it is linked to four issues. Yeah. First, we have the burgeoning environmentalism movement, yep. right? Building a plant uproots an ecosystem. It's not great. Yep. Uh, second, safety. How are the systems and operators going to make sure that the plant is running in a way that isn't dangerous to the staff and people living nearby? Again, a legitimate concern. Sure. Third is a waste question. What exactly are you guys going to be doing with your highly radioactive spent fuel? Yeah. Also a good question. Because yep. by the mid-1970s, exactly zero facilities existed to handle nuclear waste. Yeah. And finally, the protesters were looking at the government and the owners and designers of these plants and saying, like, pinky swear to me that you're not going to be using these power plants to produce nuclear weapons. Oh, okay. Because the technologies okay. and materials inside a nuclear power plant can absolutely be repurposed to do so. Sure. This is not a conspiracy theory. In 1975, a group called the Union of Concerned Scientists signed a petition to the president outlining exactly how this could be done and urging caution. Oh, good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad they figured it. I'm glad they did the homework. Let's hope that was a for your eyes only memo. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1979, there is a movie called The China Syndrome, which was released in uh, March. Have you seen this? Yep. It's Jane Fonda, her best hair, baby Michael Douglas. Yep. The China syndrome kind of speaks to this national unease around nuclear power. Yeah. So in the movie, a nuclear power plant outside Los Angeles has an emergency that results in a complete core meltdown. However, Greg, there was also an energy crisis in the 1970s. Yeah, there was. And people were not willing to go without their electricity, <clears throat> which I get. I love my electricity. I mean, sure. People like having the lights on. People like having life support machines on. Mm -hmm. People like watching TV. Cooking. Cooking. Cooking's a good one. Listening to podcasts. So there's the, the irony of the people who watched the China Syndrome mm -hmm. on their TV. Anyway. No, it was out in theaters. It wasn't on Nine, TV in okay. 1979. Well, theaters took electricity, too. There. So throughout the 70s, plants continued to be built, and the U.S. Department of Energy continued to fund research into making nuclear energy safe, reliable, and available. In good. Pennsylvania... The utility sure. company GUD commissioned a new plant on a small island in the Susquehanna River. Yeah. I honestly do not know how they got permission to do this because Three Mile Island <laughs> is not some, like, isolated place. It's just yeah. south of the state capital in Harrisburg, and it's surrounded by yep. towns and villages on both sides. It's not a huge river. It's not like the Mississippi. No. 
No, I've driven I've driven down the Susquehanna. It's gorgeous, but you wouldn't you wouldn't think of it as like let's put a nuclear power plant in the middle. So in 1979, over 650,000 people are living within 20 miles of this new plant. If you extend okay. that out to 50 miles, 2 million people are living sure. fairly close. Anyway, the GUD got sure. permission. They built this beautiful little facility designed by Babcock and Wilcox. TMI-1, which is the first reactor, it got online in 1974, and it did so well that they decided to pop another reactor on the site, which they called TMI-2, Three Mile yep. Island 1 and 2. Yep. So number one was great. Number two, things weren't super smooth. Um, by that point of the 70s, they had active protests. Um, they had some yep. construction delays. TMI-2 came online in, okay, they finished building it in April 1978, and then it started, it connected to the grid and started powering things up in December 1978. Okay. Okay. So both of these reactors are run by a smaller utility company called Metropolitan Edison. Yes. They both ran just as expected right up until the early morning hours of March 28th, 1979. You will notice that TMI2 has been online for 90 days. Between 2 and 3 in the morning, something clogged one of the filters on TMI-2. These filters get blocked all the time, so there was not any particular concern when it was noticed to be clogged around 3 o'clock. They make this point in the Netflix show that nothing good happens at 4 o'clock in the morning, and they're absolutely right. They're not wrong on they're that. They're not yeah, wrong. No, no good decisions <laughs> happen after There's between no the happy hours news. of 2 and 5. If the phone rings, yep. it's never good. It's never good. Nope. Uh, so the filter gets clogged. The operator in charge of the filter cleans it out with a little bit of compressed air. This is routine. It's an automatic process. Right. However, right. this time, a little bit of river water leaks into an airline. Oh. Yeah. That sounds bad. Well, there are a lot of pumps running inside the reactor. The pumps are what keeps the water moving and the steam moving in the right direction. And this okay. leak caused one of the pumps to turn off. This in turn caused the turbine to trip and it immediately stops working. Okay. So this, of course, is a massive problem. Yeah. The water level in the pressurizer starts to rise because it's not being pumped out. Yep. Babcock and Wilcox designs the pressure vessel with a lot of these kind of automatic fail-safe systems. The problem like is... Like you would want. Like you would want, exactly. Right. <laughs> the problem is that a nuclear reactor is so complex, you can't solve for every single problem that's likely to happen. Yeah. Uh, and this is a wonderful example of that. Mm. So there's an automatic relief valve that pops open to release the steam. But when it opens, okay. it sticks in the open position. Okay. The heat inside the reactor room is so intense, it trips an automatic response to drop the control rods into the reactor, which stops the nuclear fission and shuts down the reactor. Okay. So that's their, like, automatic, what do you call that's it? That's their kill like switch. A, a kill switch, thank you. Yeah. Now, at that point, the valve should close. Yep. And in the control room, the instruments there say it's closed, but it has stuck open. Okay. And that means that the pressure inside the tank is dropping rapidly and radioactive steam begins gushing into the containment building. All this happens, by the way, in about 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, so by the time people realize that 
there's a little problem, there's a huge problem. There's a big problem, yeah. exactly, yeah. One little uh, light uh, goes from green to red, and then 10 seconds later, all the alarms in the building are going off. Yep. So two minutes later, the water in the pressurizer tank, the pressure vessel, starts to yep. boil so violently, it starts shooting out of the stuck-open valve. Now, this is very bad, oh, because that yes. water isn't supposed to go anywhere. <laughs> it's very radioactive. Yeah. And it's also the water that is covering and cooling the reactor. Yeah. If the water goes away, the reactor the melts down. Will melt. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This causes another automatic system to kick on, which turns on the pumps <laughs> to add water into the reactor. Okay. You got to picture this. This whole thing is happening in a room that's buried underground that no people are physically present in. Yeah, okay? exactly. And they don't really have like any kind of visual feed into these mechanisms yeah. uh so the people in the control room have no idea that that valve is still open from the instruments yeah. they believe the tank is full because the water is boiling so it's uh, it's taking up more of a volume than it actually yep. is yep uh they think that everything's okay and they turn the pumps off manually mm -hmm. okay there it is there it is right and it's yep. not like you can just turn off a nuclear reactor and have it go cold the fuel is still radioactive it's still generating heat the water inside the tank continues to boil and evaporate as steam through that open valve for the next yep. two hours so that's two okay. hours of everybody in the control room flipping through these scenarios that they've been trained on and realizing that they have no idea what to do because they have no idea what the problem is right so what is the problem uh, that valve that's stuck open, right? That's part of the problem. <laughs> I mean, the other problem is that there's a lot of heat in that area, and yeah, there's nothing cooling it right it's now. It's the heat, right? Uh, yeah. So the core is underwater still. The control rods are all tucked away. But the problem is that the uranium fuel, which is contained inside zirconium tubing, it is extremely yep. hot. And so is the steam around the tank. And as the water boils off and the temperature rises, the tubing starts to fail, so the okay. tubes that are yep. keeping the uranium in place and letting the water circulate and get in there and cool it down, those are starting to melt and stick together. Mm. This is the beginning of the meltdown. So they're melting, what did you say it was? Zirconium? Yep. No. The zirconium is getting heat from both sides. That's the problem because there isn't enough water to cool it down. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's failing. This is, mm -hmm. this is like a known problem. This is why people yeah. are so adamant about keeping that water circulating keeping the tank yep. full so around 6 a.m someone in the control room realizes that the valve is stuck and they're able to close okay. it but okay. it's another hour before someone thinks to check on how much water is left inside the tank the pressure vessel hey. yep yep okay answer not enough at that yeah. point they finally start the pumps again but by this time the fuel rods have melted together to the point where the water can't keep it cool yeah. So those long, elegant rods are all twisted up together, and the problem is yep. the water can't get in there between them to cool them effectively. Cool them down, keep them from melting. Oof. Around seven forty-five okay. in the morning, twenty tons of metal and fuel melts through the side of the shroud and down into the base of the pressure vessel. Okay. I want to emphasize: nobody in the control room knows that this happens. Okay. There's no alarm that says. That says the side of your tank has just been melted. Yeah. Evacuate the East Coast of America. <laughs> <laughs>
There's no like dramatic yeah. explosion or fire or alarm or everything. I mean, every alarm in the building is already no. going off. So yeah. Uh, if they had known okay. that the core had melted down to the point that it did, there would have been an immediate evacuation. I can only imagine okay. mass panic. Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. The, the range, the full range of feelings. Mm-hmm. Instead, the operators are trying to solve this problem which is that there's suddenly a massive spike in the radiation levels inside the containment room and the plant itself to the point where they have to put their gas masks on and inform the state that there's been a little leak. We call that a boo-boo in the nuclear industry. (laughs) Uh, I don't like it. In the meantime, molten uranium is pooling at the bottom of the reactor vessel. This is made of solid steel, by the way. It's five inches thick. Given the heat of the fuel, five inches of steel will contain the meltdown for three hours oh really mm-hmm. that's actually more than i thought it's better it than you thought right <laughs> i was like five minutes ten minutes maybe no okay, you get the impression hours. that when they were designing these systems the engineers were kind of like you know i'd feel better with a really thick bottom to this yeah. thing mm-hmm. let's go with mm-hmm. five inches can we do ten can we do ten <laughs> inches can we do half a mile all right by the grace of god the cooling system works <laughs> The fuel cools just enough to solidify and the pressure vessel holds. Studies done much later in the 90s estimated that if the fuel had been slightly hotter or if the water had come on just a few minutes later, there would have been a massive failure, like a full meltdown, well before lunchtime. Oh, gosh. Okay. When the fuel cools to the point where it was no longer eating into solid steel, the pressure vessel was within about a half an hour, 30 minutes of rupturing. And again... Nobody in the plant knows this. Knew it. Yeah, that's great. To me, that freaks me out almost more than anything else. I mean, it's got to be so weird because you're you you have to be flying blind. It's not like you can put a camera in there, and or a person. You've got to trust your or a person. Yeah, and you've got to trust your instruments. And if your instruments are saying, "Hey, everything's fine," you get the impression when you read about this that they were <sighs> okay. We're still in like the magnetic <laughs> tape era of. Oh, yeah, 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 of technology, yeah. Like, they're doing a lot of these calculations by hand in the control room. Sure. There's no convenient Hollywood-style, you know, warning, you've got a meltdown. And there's no, like, genius scientist who's like, I know what's happened, here's what we have to do to fix it. So this is not an empty control room. Like, at this point... No, absolutely. All of the staff has been called in, the director is there, all of the safety people are there. Uh, the designers, the engineers, the control room is packed, which I think probably just adds to the sure. chaos because, again, nobody knows what's happening. Nobody knows how to get the radiation to stop. Okay. So TMI2 is shut down and Met Ed, the villain of our piece, yep. Metropolitan Edison, yep. declares an emergency, but also says, confusingly, it was a very minor incident. They shut down as a precaution. And there was absolutely no danger of radioactivity outside the island. Um. Now, those are three things. Sources? (laughs) Three things, they're saying. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, of course, it was not a very minor incident. Uh, Radioactivity was absolutely released, but the levels detected around the plant and in the nearby areas were actually pretty low. Yeah. So the containment building was doing its job. The pressure vessel was doing its job. Thank goodness. It's just that there was a lot of radiation inside the building. Yeah. So now this weird back and forth starts. The governor recognizes a public health threat, like immediately within hours of this happening. 
Sure, yeah. And his advisors are talking about evacuating the area within 20-mile radius of the plant just as a precaution. Sure. The government, in the form of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, wants to reassure the public that nuclear energy is a good thing. So for the past five or ten years in America, they've sunk billions into getting 75 plants up and running across the country. They're reducing our dependence on foreign oil, which is a huge problem in the 70s. And they're providing a way out of the energy crisis. And Metropolitan Edison, (laughs) won't somebody please think of the utility companies? (laughs) Right, right. They want to keep their customers. So they're going, absolutely nothing happened, guys. No worries. You know, at press conferences like the one you described in the opening story there. Yeah. People are saying they have data and they have estimations. They're making guesses, Basically, and you can make guesses on the existing data in a number of directions. Yeah. On March 30th, the governor recognizes the potential for airborne contamination and advises this kind of low-key evacuation of vulnerable people, uh, specifically pregnant women and young kids. Okay. Whole neighborhoods pack up and leave. Like this This is not the kind of thing you want to stick around and be like, oh, maybe it'll be fine. I'm sure it's fine. I feel like I should add that he and the state government may not have believed that it was as much of a non-incident as they were saying, because at the same time they were giving this order, they also ordered 250,000 bottles of potassium iodide, which in 1979 was the best defense against radioactive iodine. Okay. Uh, One of the things you'd expect to be breathing in immediately after a nuclear reactor meltdown. Uh Uh-huh. So he's saying there's no danger, there's no public danger, evacuate your pregnant wife and your preschooler. But at the same time, he's getting this medicine. Yeah. Okay, so now the core itself is cooling. There has not been a full meltdown. A partial meltdown happened, not the full kind. Okay. So the thing that everyone is concerned about two or three days after the initial quote-unquote incident The thing that everyone's concerned about is a hydrogen explosion. Okay. Now, the pressure vessel where the meltdown occurred is holding. Obviously, no one's opening it up at this point. That's probably a good call. (laughs) It's cooling down inside. But as that soupy, disgusting mess cools down, hydrogen is pooling at the top of the vessel. Okay. The fear is, if there's enough of it, it will explode. It will rupture the vessel and the building and let all those yep. radioactive isotopes out into the world. This would be like a full-on nuclear explosion, like a bomb going off. Yeah, this would be real bad. Yes. People are not wrong about the potential of a hydrogen explosion after a core meltdown, by the way. This is exactly what happens at Chernobyl and Fukushima. Yep. And both of yep. those times it blows the buildings apart and causes massive amounts of radiation to spill out. Yeah. However, there is mm-hmm. no oxygen present inside the vessel. So without oxygen, the hydrogen can explode and can be vented. Can explode. One hopes that they did this venting very slowly and carefully, but uh, it kind of sounded to me like they just like cracked the lid, <laughs> waited a few minutes. Carl, do you mind going up and opening a couple windows? Go down to the end of the island and see how the radiation is. <laughs> oh, God. They do what they call controlled emissions, where they just like let a okay. little bit off and then they wait mm-hmm. and then they let a little bit off. Okay. By the end of the month, the government has announced the crisis has been handled. Oh, good. Met Ed Yay. is like, what crisis? Everything's great. Yep. And the cleanup begins. Oh, I should tell okay. you first that um, Jimmy Carter comes for a visit. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Quick sidebar for Jimmy Carter, the American president Quick at set. the time. Yep. Did you know he yep. was a nuclear engineer? I did not. <laughs> Every time I've heard him talk, he's referred to himself as a peanut farmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when I read he this, was I was a like, engineer. let's fact check that. Yeah, he was in the Navy. It, he worked on nuclear submarines. Is this the submarines. same Jimmy Carter? <laughs> same one. The wow. same one. That's awesome. Uh, so he actually is also like keenly aware that the U.S. needs nuclear power to get out of the energy sure. crisis. Sure. So yeah. what he does is he takes the first lady and they tour the okay. plant on April 1st, which is two days, three days after the incident. So after President Carter comes and goes, people kind of calm down. Uh, the people who sure. had evacuated come back and the cleanup begins. Okay. Now, Methead is sort of correct. They're saying... <laughs> Okay. They're saying no, no actual, like, there was no crisis. Very little radiation actually leaked out of the plant. Okay. And the EPA is on site at this point. They did a long-term study that found no contamination in the river, the soil, and the plants, and only minor contamination in the air. Uh, the statistic that you hear is that you would get more radiation from a chest X-ray than you would from being outside within... I think three miles of Three Mile Island. Okay. So they make it sound very safe. Like we've all gotten x-rays before. We've all been out in the sun, most of us. Sure. Um, and they're making it sound like this is comparable to that. They're saying the, the quote that gets thrown around is that it's well below the levels that would cause alarm for human exposure. Okay. Okay. All right. However, <laughs> you know what Mark Twain says about lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? Yeah. It's not clear how much testing they actually did and what that data is or how that data is meaningful. Oh, okay. They didn't just like take soil samples and be like, yep, there's no radioactive material in this. No, they definitely took soil samples and they definitely tested them. But it's not clear how much of the area got tested and okay. how aggressively it got tested. And okay. when they were doing those controlled emissions... They were testing at various points, but obviously you can't cover the whole area around yeah, the plant. Yeah, yeah, um, So it could have been just like the plume went in a certain direction and they were testing in the other direction. I don't know. It's very unclear. <laughs> okay. Because if you talk to the people who were living in Middletown, which is right across the river. Yeah. Or they will say that there was a bad taste in the water. Yeah. Dead fish washing up for miles and miles up and down the Susquehanna. Uh, people had Probably sore throats, diarrhea. Yep. At least one person mm -hmm. had lesions. Those are all symptoms of radiation poisoning. And there are people who absolutely believe that far more radiation was released than the government or MetEd will ever admit. But at the same time, I mean, can you prove it? The White House commissioned an investigation in 1979, which found that the designers, Babcock and Wilcox who, again, mm -hmm. designed a lot of the plants that we're still depending on mm -hmm. today. Uh, yep. Not that that should disturb you at all. The no. designers, as well as MetEd, had not built or maintained TMI-2 properly. Oh, okay. And they had failed to train operators on the kind of complex situations they had been faced with. Sure. They also found that emergency procedures, including the kind of automatic shutoffs that occurred inside the pressure vessel, that they, those were mm -hmm. inadequate. Okay. Uh, MetEd and the TMI plant itself get sued 
of course. Naturally. Uh, they ended up paying about $25 million to settle a public health lawsuit. And another okay. $1 million to settle criminal charges that they falsified safety tests prior to the accident. Which they absolutely did. Mm, I hate that. This is exactly what happens in the China Syndrome. They have a contractor who says something is fixed and it's not. Sure. Okay. To give you an idea about how little people understood about how close they had come to complete apocalypse, <laughs> the owner of the yeah. plant, GPU, the General Public Utilities Corporation, they right. hire a cleanup crew and a cleanup contractor, and their plan is to get it up and running again. No. <laughs> right. You can't do that when the cask is melted. Well, this is what they're thinking, Greg. They spent $900 million building this. It ran mm -hmm. for 90 days. Yep. So in 1983, they have a video scan done of the inside of the pressure vessel. This is the first time anyone's gone in there and take a look. Okay. People are like, huh, that looks a little worse than you'd expect. <laughs> what they were expecting, Greg, is to find the core intact and some damage yep. to the pumps. Yep. Instead, they found that the core had melted to the point where it had collapsed into itself. Yep. So with that, plus the amount of radiation still in the building, like to the point where it wasn't safe to be inside for more than a few minutes, mm -hmm. the reactor was deactivated and closed. Yeah. Which it absolutely should have been. Yes. I'm sorry you take a 90 million loss, but... No, no, 900. 900 million. 900 right? million. I'm sorry, but there's no saving that. No. There comes a point. We got to cut our losses <laughs> and move on. All right. This cleanup project, which stabilized the remnants of the core, it actually gets shipped off to Idaho. It reduces the amount of radiation inside the building to a supposedly safe level. This cleanup project lasts for 15 years and costs $1 billion. Wow. Today, TMI-2 is classified as something called post-defueling monitored storage, which is a beautiful okay. euphemism, and I'm going to start using it. Post-defueling monitored storage. Yeah, you don't go down to the basement. It's in post-defueling <laughs> monitored storage mode. I've got six alligators down there. Yep. They've been defueled and now we're monitoring. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, there are two TMIs. Yeah, TMI-1. Is it still being operated? So it was not involved with the accident at all. They're completely right. separate systems. It shut down right. during the investigation and cleanup, but in 1985, it was brought back online, of course, to massive protests in the community. Sure. That got much more intense. Uh, this was in 1985. The Chernobyl meltdown is in 1986. Yeah. So kind of a bad optic. Get it. I, I get it. I get it. Uh, however, TMI-1 continued to operate until... 2019. Really? Which blows my mind. <laughs> yep. Wow. Okay. Today in the U.S., we still love our nuclear energy. We are the largest producer of nuclear power, and 20% of our electrical grid is powered by nuclear plants. Okay. TMI was a wake-up call for sure, but yeah. it does not approach the scale, including the damage and loss of life, uh, the scale of those accidents in Chernobyl, wind scale, or Fukushima Daiichi. Sure. And that's the story of the Three Mile Island meltdown. Gross, I don't People like People call it. it a partial meltdown, but, but it I'm, melted. I'm just going to call it a meltdown. No, it because melted. it did melt. It melted. Yeah. It melted. It's a meltdown. Yep. Alrighty. Well, although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show by 
bald-faced lying about any credentials, uh, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly... And of course you do. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? So uh, we're going to talk about what happens uh, when you are out at sea and everything catches on fire. Uh, we're going to talk about the series of mistakes and actions of heroism that led to and tried to solve the Piper Alpha explosion. Yeah. Do we have like a good rescue story in there? There, there are some good rescue stories, but it's also just like the complex chain of events that had to happen in order to make it happen mm -hmm. is really fascinating. All right. Oh, I can't wait to talk to you about that, actually. It's a really interesting story.